Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and with me today is one of my all-time favourite economists who I've learned a great deal from, Professor Matthias Dopke at the London School of Economics. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Very excited to meet you and be here. Okay, so we've got three questions today. One is, does economics explain the global cultural diversity in parenting? Then we're going to move on to fertility, and then we're going to look at women's legal rights. But let's start off with parenting. Right, so across the world, there is great cultural diversity in how we raise our kids. Tell me about this. There is great cultural diversity, and initially... When we started working about this, we thought, yes, a lot of it is culture. It's just that uh, the Chinese, the Swedes, the Germans, the French, they have their own ways of uh, raising children that have cultural roots that economists have nothing to, to say about. But we came from this from the perspective of uh, using economic theory. And uh, the economic way of thinking always takes the same perspective, which is that people, broadly speaking, know what they're doing. They have certain objectives and they're purposeful in, uh, in achieving them. And we thought, well, maybe uh, some of this economic thinking can also explain some of this variation. So we wanted to figure out first, uh, what does the economic approach apply in the first place? What should we expect to see? And then how much of the variation can we, can we explain? And there's a lot of detail to that. But uh, one of the key things that we found is that from the economic perspective, one thing that should really matter is economic inequality. Because our perspective is that what people are trying to achieve, their objective, is for their kids to do well. You know, we usually like our kids, we even love them, we want them to succeed uh, and uh, do well in their future lives. But what it means to succeed, what it uh, takes to succeed, that can be different in different societies and, and we identified economic inequality as being a big part of that. Why inequality? Well, if you have very high inequality, then your well-being, your outcomes, will depend a lot on your ranking in society. If you have a society where only the top 10% do well, as you might say is now the case in some places, then you will really want your kid to be in those 10%. And you're going to do whatever it takes. Uh, could be getting them the right positions, the right contacts, uh, doing really well in school, testing high, getting to the right schools. You will really push hard on all those dimensions to get them into that place. But of course, as economists, we also know that everything comes with trade-offs. You know, it's, uh, there's some return to uh, pushing kids hard to succeed and be at the top of the scale in some ways. It also comes with cost. You know, it's, uh, first of all, uh, painful for you to do all of this as opposed to relaxing uh, you know, more and uh, enjoying more leisure. It's also tough for the children. It can be stressful for them to be pushed all the time as opposed to just uh, developing a bit more independently on their own, developing their independence and, uh, and creativity. So if we didn't feel there was a high return, we wouldn't be doing that. And that explains why in low inequality places, you uh, see parents often adopt a much more relaxed, uh, psychologists would say, uh, permissive parenting style. And so, so that was where we came from in terms of the uh, economic background, and then we took this to the data. And what was a bit uh, shocking even to us as economists is how much of the variation of the data we could actually explain with that. So we used uh, various surveys on what values parents emphasize in uh, raising children, such as emphasizing hard work, you know, which uh, Americans do, Chinese do even more, uh, as opposed to emphasizing creativity and independence, as uh, in other countries uh, parents find much more important. And we found that these uh, parenting values, these parenting styles, line up almost one for one with economic inequality across countries. So that came, uh, that brought us to the conclusion that in fact economics does explain a lot of this cultural variation. Of course, not everything. Of course, there's a lot more to it than that. 
but uh, we now do believe that actually economic forces are quite important. So as I recall in your book, the wonderful book, uh, you use two kinds of ways of understanding this. One is you trace changes over time. So when there's a rise in inequality, then we see this cultural shift in the style of parenting and also comparing between countries that are sort of cross-sectional. So here, so and, and one, when I was recently in India, I thought it was a perfect illustration of your theory because there you have high inequality, very little social security, but extremely high returns to, with a skills premium. So there is a massive parental support, massive parental investment, massive encouragement of their children. You know, why can't you be like uh, Sunak, for example? Right. You know, so parents really boosting up their kids, spending a huge amount of money in tuition, for example, for these all-important grade 10 exams, so they get into illustrious universities, or so they get an all-important government job. So India seems to be exactly, exactly what you're saying, that parents... Right. And there's a paper by um, uh, F uh, uh, Zara Faridi, and she shows that mothers may even, mothers with college education may even step out of the labor market to focus on their kids' education. And when I was interviewing women, they may even group their leave so that it times with their kids' exams to have really, really intensive parenting. So I definitely saw that. But here's a question for you. If it's the case that economics explains our parenting, and, it, and as you said, it comes with trade-offs. So, for example, uh, there's a time cost for parents. There's a stress for parents. There might also be a stress for children that, you know, to feel this much pressure. And that might relate to the sort of anxiety that we see amongst teenagers today. What do you think would be the... If you wanted to reduce that intensive parenting, if a policymaker wanted to do that, what would they do? Yes, that's a great question because I think that that question is on many people's minds. You know, part of the motivation for our own work came from being parents and understanding that this uh, this new stressful, intensive parenting it doesn't feel you know as maybe as nice as we would have expected previously compared to maybe earlier generations who had uh, more time to themselves. And you do in fact see that in uh, cultures that are even more intense, say South Korea, with this, all this exam pressure, uh, China. China has now uh, made a bunch of legal changes to rule out, for example, cramming schools and uh, tutoring to uh, take some of this pressure off. Now, the, the basic conclusion from our work is that what doesn't work is just to tell parents to relax. Yeah, sure. And often you, you know, get, get this, uh, this notion, say, in newspaper articles where people point out that uh, or, or claim that you know, modern parents are just uh, insane, have kind of gone off the rails. It, it may look that way, but we are saying, and, and we do believe, that a lot of this is a response to the environment. And that to get a change, you have to change the uh, environment that parents are responding to. Now, what is this environment? To some extent, it's macroeconomic inequality, which is, of course, not that easy to change quickly. You know, this, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, is a response to global trends in uh, returns to human capital, innovation. So uh, that is not something that can be changed at the, you know, with, a, with a simple law. At the same time, even with... Uh, similar global economic trends, we see large differences still in parenting across countries, and these correspond really to institutions. You know? So it's not just uh, economic inequality, it's also, for example, how do I design the schooling system, it's also how do I design uh, vocational training after school. You know? So the one thing we uh, point out is that if you look at the situation in the United States, for example, the situation where parents perceive with some uh, justification that there's just one path to success, you know, which goes uh, through uh, high school into college, a four-year degree with a college degree, then you have much better outcomes. In many ways, uh, much higher earnings, also a higher probability of getting married, 
uh, you know, outcomes in, 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 a, in a number of dimensions. And to some extent, this is because college works well, but it's also because the alternative does not work well. So there is not much of a system at all really for providing training outside of college in a more vocational uh, applied way, whereas other countries have uh, uh, more paths available that, that, you can, that you can choose depending on what your interests uh, and your skills are. And that's also an element of what uh, takes uh, some of this pressure off uh, the parents. Of course, there's just one example. It starts in early childhood. Do we have uh, support for, for high-quality uh, preschools uh, for, for all parents uh, in the early years, which is an important part in generating some human capital? Do I have a tracked school system where I have high-stakes exams uh, even in, uh, in the uh, earlier grades? So these are all choices that uh, policymakers can make and uh, that interact with the pressure that parents feel. Okay, but can I ask a question? So, if I understand you correctly, we're saying that if governments invested more in pre-K, in universal pre-K, as they've done in New York, for example, then, or, and if there was more social security, if you've got more public goods, then that could mitigate some of the effects that we're seeing. But aren't those policy choices, whether to have social spending, etc., partly endogenous to culture? So isn't it really the culture that's perpetuating why countries are the way they are. Like in Sweden, for example, as the Social Democrats came to power, then, you know, you always had a universalist policy. Right. Whereas in the US, because of a culture of racism and individualism and skepticism about the state, for example, then childcare doesn't become an election issue. Like I was recently interviewing mothers in uh, San Francisco and they're paying an enormous amount of money for childcare. Mm. And I say, well, was this an election issue? And they're saying, no, you just suck it up. You know, you get your friends and family to help you out you, you you know you make do as best you can and you stomach these enormous costs and as you say in your book this is biased towards very rich parents who can afford to do that so isn't there partly a way that you know some of the policy choices that shape inequality that shape social spending on all these policy shape that's culture yes I, th I think that's right that uh, at the end of the day differences come from somewhere you know yeah. you cannot just say that mm. Sweden versus United States just fell from the, from the <laughs> right. sky and interestingly, those places were not that different uh, 100 years ago. You know, if, you, if you read uh, you know, novels about uh, Sweden in the, uh, say, before World War II, you know, it's just as uh, authoritarian and uh, unequal mm -hmm. as, yes. as many other places. And then there was a political history uh, that came out of that. And so it can be, to some extent, just a happenstance, kind of who gets uh, empowered at a certain time, but also cultural changes that, of course, evolve together with uh, economic changes. And with the parenting, we were surprised how important uh, the economics is, but it doesn't mean that culture doesn't matter at all. Of course, there's also cultural aspects to this. For example, in say in Chinese parenting, you know, there's a there's a long tradition, for example, of uh, uh, authority given to elders. You know that shows up in the parenting too, and that then uh, enforces uh, institutions that work with the system. So there's a mutual feedback from uh, culture to institutions. Here's a question. At the exact same level of inequality, how different is the style of parenting between, say, the USA and Sweden? Like, if we go f back historically to when the USA was like what Sweden is today or something like that. Right. It's, you know, it's hard to tell because yeah. we don't really have good parenting measures oh, okay. going very far back. We know, we know just from, you know, more descriptive evidence that uh, parenting used to be very authoritarian everywhere. No? So, okay. so pretty much every... Uh, we, we, there's this book... Uh, about uh, parenting advice before 1900 and uh, there's hundreds of people writing about it and there was two out of 200 that were uh, saying that, 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 who were not saying that fathers should beat their children. No, it was a universal advice. 
uh, we did a bit of uh, empirical analysis for the last few decades and they, if you look at the uh, time trends, so just look at how uh, change in inequality in the country over time changes parenting and you use that to project you know, what would be the case in Sweden today if it had American inequality, you get almost the same parenting. You know? So certainly the slope that you see over the last few decades uh, is suggestive that that would do almost everything, but we don't have you know, quite enough data going back far enough to know for sure. Okay, I'm with you. And I'd say another, and I'll say one more thing, which I, I'm sure you'll agree with, is that another way culture mediates intensive parenting is, of course, gender. So in very patriarchal mm-hmm. countries, even if they're, even if it's very economically unequal, parents may still invest less in their daughter's education. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. And uh, in other work, we there's certainly uh, parts where. Uh, culture is more important than others, and gender is a very important one. Division of labor in the household, you know, yeah. it's, it's very clear that the division of labor you see nowadays among uh, working couples is uh, not explainable just with economics. You know, we, we see that in in, uh, in households where uh, mothers have higher wages than, than uh, fathers, they still do the majority of the childcare, for example, which strongly suggests the cultural aspect. Religion often has a big gender aspect, and this, uh, this shows up in, in many different places. Okay, so... What we'll conclude is economics explains a lot of parenting, but not understood. Okay, I'm with you, but I'm, I love the book. I really, really love the book. It blew my mind. Okay, next question. Part two of three. Yes. Is feminism to blame for falling fertility? It's a wonderful question. It's a, it's a loaded question. Blaming is usually not uh, the term we, we use. It certainly uh, interacts very strongly with fertility, and, uh, and there is even some sense in which it may be to blame. In the following sense that if you go back far enough in time, uh, every society was patriarchal and every society had high fertility. Now, not, now we are in a, society, in a society where we have many uh, more rights for women, much more feminist in, in some sense, and we have much lower fertility. And, and clearly, there's a relation between the two in the sense that we had a very, well, at least for some time, uh, not all the way back in history, but let's say... Uh, 150 years ago, a very strict division of labor by gender, women specializing in, uh, in childcare and other housework, uh, not having very good opportunities in the labor market. And, uh, and that is some of the reason why fertility rates were high, because uh, women's time was cheap, and so having many uh, children was kind of easy to achieve. And so if you compare that with today's situation, where women are working, their time is much more valuable, you have dual careers, time for raising uh, children is much more scarce, uh, that explains a lot about uh, why fertility is lower. And of course, you might say, well, that's feminism. You know, feminism is now uh, more equal gender roles and therefore very much closely connected to low fertility rates. So in that sense, a connection is there. It's not uh, crazy to say you know, that uh, uh, feminism, well, blaming is maybe an unfortunate term, but has, has some connection to low fertility. At the same time, there's also a different side to this. And this is what our most recent work on fertility is about. Uh, which is that if you look at uh, the most recent data, last few decades... Oh, wait, I want to stop. I want to stop there. Okay, I just want to st- talk here. about the first part, the first element of it. And so I just want to stress that you, you find this, this is a global trend in terms of the drivers of falling fertility, so that when you have skill-based technological change, and when you have job-creating economic growth, mm-hmm. then, you, then you tend to see rising female education, rising male education, then rising female education, and across the world, we tend to see rising female labor force participation. And so in South Korea, for example, we had this enormously rapid, enormously rapid drop in fertility. And it was simply a function of 
families choosing to prioritize women's earnings. And so women flocked to the labor market. And we saw right. the same in China, that it wasn't, you know, many demographers agree that it's not really the one child policy, but women seizing those economic opportunities. And we see this in every country. It's skill-based right. technological change, education, women seizing those jobs. And women realize that there are massive trade-offs to having a child. So when it's very, very difficult to mother or when the government is not very supportive, as you say in your paper, or when men are not very supportive and when the economic costs are high, women cut their fertility. Exactly. There's really two sides to that. Mm. One side is this, what we call the quality-quality trade-off. Yes. There's also the sense of children got a lot more expensive because you want to invest in their education. Right. Which is a bit separate from the uh, you know, feminism, female labor force aside, and, and that explains a lot why fertility falls a lot when um, education goes up and kids start going to school. But also, we have this uh, very strong trend towards higher female labor market participation, and until recently, that was uh, also very strongly associated with lower fertility. You know, so that uh, the more women worked, the more women were, uh, the more mothers chose to go to the workplace, the fewer children you had, both over time and across countries. Yeah, and I think uh, two things. One is it might be, it's difficult to disentangle the two, the causes of, you know, why parents might want to invest more in one child. Like, for example, in India now, even in Bihar, which is very poor, we're seeing parents only having two children. And so there might be a cultural shift in favor of having just a few children and heavily investing them and parents gaining status through their children doing tremendously well. And I think for me... Challenging my own question, when I say, you know, is feminism to blame? I think when we see rising female labor force participation, that's not necessarily feminism, as I would call it. Like when people blame feminism for falling fertility, they usually mean like women being assertive and mobilizing and having too many rights, that sort of thing, which isn't necessarily the same as female employment. Okay, okay, right. So that was the first start, that fertility drops when the trade-offs are too high, either because people want quality or because women want to work and it's really tough to do everything. Uh, and I think another element of that can be like birth strikes that we saw in the Soviet Union, in Russia, and even in Iran today. Like when I was in, uh, I was interviewing Iranian women in Turkey and a lot, of them, a lot of them said to me, you know, we don't want to have children in this environment. We don't want to raise our kids in this environment. So that was another way in which, you know, feeling uncertain about the future, not wanting to bring your child into that right. environment. Another aspect of uh, feminism is that there also can be disagreement between uh, um, you know, men and women on, on fertility. So my colleague uh, Nava Shraf, with a few authors here, has uh, research in, in Zambia, where they uh, look at providing birth control to couples, and uh, with uh, one of the treatments being providing birth control in a way that can be concealed uh, by women uh, without uh, the uh, husbands knowing this. And you see that uh, uh, this led to a substantially lower fertility. So these women were now able to control their fertility better without their husband interfering. And, uh, and they chose to have fewer of them. And if you think of empowering women in this way to make their own choices as one aspect of feminism, again, it goes in the direction of uh, that leading to lower fertility. She's also got a wonderful paper on empathy and that when uh, that women's husbands in Zambia understand the greater risks of maternal mortality, then they become much more sympathetic and understand. Right, yes. yeah. mm-hmm. It's a really wonderful paper. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Um, okay, right. So then now come to the exciting, the, the second part of your fertility story, which is very exciting. Right, which is uh, uh, motivated by the uh, stunning empirical observation that the relationship between uh, women's labor force participation and fertility across countries has reversed. If you look in 1970, you find the countries where the most women work, 
back then the United States, for example, had the lowest fertility rates. Countries where uh, very few women worked and you had more traditional division of labor had much higher fertility rates, maybe three or four as opposed to two children per family. And that relationship across countries flattened out and uh, since uh, the 1980s has reverted. And it's still, you know, now it's getting a bit flatter again, but it's still reverted. So we now have countries where we have very high participation having uh, the highest fertility rates among the high-income countries. Now, this is not a global fact, this is among high-income countries. For example, Scandinavian countries, uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, France, you know, are countries that have relatively high fertility rates among the high-income group. Uh, places like Germany, uh, Eastern European countries, Italy, Spain, where participation is still lower, are now the ones where we have a lower fertility rates. So this, uh, this basic idea that it's all about the uh, cost of women working, and if they work more, it becomes more costly, that somehow has been rejected by the recent data. So tell me, tell me why Italy's fertility rate is now falling, because it's such a maternalist country, you know, that seems surprising. What's going on in Italy? Right, and so this is now the second uh, part of uh, what is uh, happening with, uh, with feminism, you know, because mm. uh, feminism to some extent has to do with uh, what the institutions are, you know, what is it possible uh, to work, what are the constraints on women. It also has to do with aspirations, you know, what are the uh, plans that we have for our lives, you know, what do we want to do? And, uh, and what we kind of argue is that what we have uh, in these uh, now relatively low fertility countries is a bit of a mismatch on the aspiration side and the, you know, what are the uh, constraints imposed by society. So, so our, our view is that what has really changed from 30 years ago is that the aspirations that men and women have have now really converged to a large extent, have also converged across countries in the sense that uh, if you were to interview young people, you know, I think a large majority of them, both male and female, would say, I want to have a career, I want to have some success in my life uh, in the labor force, I also want to have a family and be involved in that family. You know, they have a, a similar plan, which would be quite different from what they would have said uh, 50 years before that, where gender roles were still uh, very separate, and I think many uh, people would have supported that also if you had asked them about that. So now we all have this aspiration of uh, having careers and families, it just turns out it's not that easy to do. You know? For, for uh, many dual career couples with kids, that clash of how to make uh, careers uh, fit and uh, also take care of the children the way you think is right, uh, that's kind of really the defining conflict of your life. It turns out how well that can be done varies a lot across places. Because it has to do with things like childcare policy. Is it even possible to find childcare for my children? It has to do to some extent with cultural norms. You know, if, uh, if I uh, use childcare the whole day, will my neighbor think uh, worse of me because of that? It also has to do with the labor market. Is it easy to find jobs? Uh, is there some flexibility? And so we are now saying what we are seeing is that we have uh, the same aspirations across countries, but we have just some places where this conflict is easy to resolve and others where it's still harder. And of course, we think of the places where we have an easier time uh, getting uh, both uh, women and men to follow their dreams as the ones that have more feminism because then we have now more gender equal roles. So, so in the current phase, actually more feminism leads to more children because it reduces uh, this conflict that's now uh, a big reason for low fertility rates. I'm with you. And, and I definitely saw this when I was in Turkey for the past month. So their female employment is highest amongst tertiary educated, college educated women. So there are lots of women who are very educated. And as you say, they want their own careers. They've got these ambitions to be doctors or lawyers, etc. But they're incredibly constrained by an environment of religious conservatism and government policies. So, for example, they have the very short school day, you know, it might be eight till 12, 
or two to 12 till 4 and that's impossible to juggle with a career so one it's very difficult to be a working mother a second factor is that in a country where female employment is below the global average even among um, unmarried and women without children the cost of private care is very expensive there's an undersupply of private care on top of that as a third factor is that men are reluctant to participate in share care work so it's exactly what you said that even when you've got these aspirations these women who want to you know have a career etc it's very difficult in that environment because of these three factors the the policy the expensive private care and men that help them so I, I, I everything you say in your paper I see it as, as I do my qualitative research and talking of, of, of Turkish side the Turkish student who uh, because we were talking about cultural factors also earlier so it's one, one specific thing that she mentioned which is you know it seems small but is it matters is a cultural norms for how you entertain guests you know so she was saying that in Turkish Turkish culture the expectation is if you have uh, people coming over uh, you have to make a lot of food and you have to make it all by yourself you have to really show off kind of your whole you know productivity and creativity in the kitchen that's just something that's expected of uh, you know, of families of women there not, not of men of course And uh, also, if you're abroad, you know, if you're uh, Turkish, but you're, you live in abroad in the Turkish society, that's something that's kind of expected of you. And she was telling me that she always tells, you know, younger uh, Turkish women just coming to the United States or starting, say, a PhD program, that, listen, if you want to be successful, you better uh, step out of those norms right now. You know? Because if you spend uh, all day uh, on Sunday just, just cooking and you also want to have uh, kids and also get your PhD done, it's just going to be at some point impossible. You, know, you have to uh, think about, are these norms really right for uh, what I'm trying to do? And you have to say, no, I'm going to reject this. I'm just going to order delivery you know, for, for my guests and, uh, and take the shortcut. But there can be many smaller things like that you know, that really... Uh, you know, just seem like a part of culture, but, but do constrain what women can do and therefore affect outcomes. Massively. Yeah, I'd say definitely. I mean, I benefited from that extreme generosity to guess when I was in India right. and Turkey, right? People would be incredibly, incredibly nice to me. And in India, in fact, female labor force participation actually falls not with childbirth, but marriage. Because when a woman marries, she's then got to do an enormous amount of work right. in caring for the joint family, especially in North India. And when there are festivals, a woman is expected to make so many different things so there is a huge huge volume of work and and again this is this is cultural that historically people would expand their social networks and expand social ties through generosity to guests you know that's your way of securing you know economic security that you've got friends in all sorts of right. different mm -hmm. places and now that culture yeah absolutely and so. there's beautiful things about that you know yes yeah, yeah of course situations it can be Not what you need. Yeah, so I, I, you probably recall uh, there was a, a Twitter for a, uh, what is it, a couple of months ago, where the news that like Swedes don't even give their that's guests right, dinner, right. right? So it's super easy to be a woman in Sweden. You don't need to feed people. <laughs> I did not know that about the Swedes, but apparently some of them are very offended, but it's certainly not quite the same as in Turkey. I think we can. Yeah, exactly. Quite so there's a huge, huge global variation in culture, and that are, so there's an interrelationship. Okay, third question. Why do some societies still deny women's legal rights? So you've got this wonderful paper and it's just come out and it's tracking the evolution of women's legal rights and all different kinds of rights. Tell me all about it because I love it. Yes, so, and this is, um, women's rights I think is an issue where uh, we are getting closer to the bounds of economics and other factors being uh, important. Uh, women's rights have changed tremendously. We've talked about fertility, we've talked about uh, parenting, so it interacts with those changes and so it, also leads us to ask, well, can economic factors also explain why women's rights have changed uh, so much? You know, we have seen that 
200 years ago, for example, in the UK, common law, uh, once you got married as a woman, you lost all rights uh, in, from a civil perspective. Now, of course, if you get murdered, I guess there's some punishment for that. But you have no right to property. You have no rights to your own children. Your husband can abandon you, but, but keeps uh, the children. No right to inheritance, uh, no right to divorce. So uh, essentially, in a, in a, from a legal perspective, once you marry, you cease to exist because now there's only the union and only the husband is uh, uh, able to act legally on, on behalf of that of union. So it's a state of quite extreme legal inequality. And from there, we have gone, again, in many different countries, uh, together with economic development, to a state of uh, being fairly close to legal equality, not 100%, but, but getting uh, pretty close. This has been a process really drawn out uh, slowly over time. So uh, in the UK and the United States, for example, the first thing that changed was some of these economic rights. So women gained the uh, right to uh, own property, to uh, control their own earnings, to uh, receive and uh, leave bequests uh, in the 19th century for the most part. Then we go on to political rights, so the right to vote, uh, mostly after World War I. Uh, even then, there was still a lot of discrimination and uh, inequality in the labor market. You know, for example, in uh, the United States, uh, many professions had, had what's called marriage bars, essentially rules that says once you get married, you, cannot, you can no longer do this job. In, in teaching, that was almost universal. So if you were a teacher uh, and you got married, that day you lose your job, which is... Uh, you know, it seems crazy from this perspective, but it was just the, the case that these jobs were reserved only for single women or for men. So that was still there and that kind of then went away uh, for the most part after World War II. And then finally we come to uh, body rights. You know, so abortion is the one that we talk about the most, but it's also sexual harassment, um, uh, rape and marriage. You know, these are things that were uh, not um, codified as, as illegal in most places until a few decades ago and are now spreading a lot more also. So a very long process of political change and of course we want to know why it happens. And again, you know, economic perspective uh, takes the view that this uh, is linked well to what people want to accomplish. Now, ultimately it is uh, uh, people who have passed these legal changes, it is politicians who propose them, it is voters uh, to some extent who uh, elect these politicians or maybe directly vote for change uh, if there's a referendum. And so from an economic perspective you want to understand uh, what are the incentives, what are the uh, preferences that are expressed by these uh, legal changes. And the interesting thing, or one interesting th thing there is that it's probably not just about uh, women want more rights and men don't want to give them, because we see a lot of change uh, happening uh, well before women got the right to vote. You know, we're talking about this uh, first wave of change in economic rights that happened uh, pretty much everywhere before women could vote. So it was really men uh, proposing and voting for those uh, changes. Now. It could be that some of this is uh, just um, demand, you know, so that, that women get organized and uh, it's a women's rights movement. They say we want these rights and somehow they convince men uh, to do this and ultimately, you know, the uh, public at large. It could also be cultural, you know, that some of this inequality has, say, roots in religion. Uh, there's a secular relation as uh, societies get richer and so these things then start to uh, be less important. And in fact, in the data, I think it's pretty clear that some of these forces are important. But again, as economists, we would say, well, there may be uh, something more to that because uh, changes to women's rights really do affect people's individual outcomes. You know, they affect outcomes in their family, they affect outcomes in the labor market. And people have many reasons uh, beyond just culture or um, religion uh, to care about those outcomes. So, so what are some mechanisms that can explain uh, what people's preferences are over changes in women's rights? And so this is what we survey. So there's you know, a number of papers uh, that deal with this question. 
and, uh, and we point to mechanisms in a number of different areas. First of all, there's the basic uh, conflict between women and men that uh, mostly has to do with bargaining inside the family. You know, if, I'm, if I'm married and uh, I'm, I'm a man, in principle, I have nothing to gain from my wife to have having more rights. You know, of course, if I love her, hopefully I do, then these rights will not be very relevant you know, because rights often are about what happens if there's a breakdown, if you kind of hit, hit some constraint. Uh, so, yeah, but nobody stops me from being very nice and treating my, my wife nicely uh, to begin with. Uh, I don't really benefit directly from, from having uh, better rights uh, for my wife. Uh, if I'm a, a not very nice husband and I want to get all the resources for myself, I will be actively opposed to getting women more rights. So just the bargaining perspective inside the household would suggest that uh, women should be in favor of more rights and men should be opposed. But we're saying, well, this is maybe not the main, maybe it's actually a very small uh, thing that uh, drives a change because there's other things I care about too. So one aspect of this is uh, uh, what we call the altruism, the parental altruism channel, which is that uh, many people have uh, children or you have other relatives and you care about them too. Uh, I care, uh, for example, about my uh, own daughters and I might be worried what happens to them. So even if um, in my own marriage I think, well, my wife getting more rights is not my, my first priority. If, if I like her, it's not going to be a big threat either. But I might be really worried about my daughter marrying some no good uh, son-in-law and not having a protection at that moment. You know? so, so caring about my children, what happens to them, ultimately caring about my grandchildren, will also give me a motive to care about uh, the division of uh, power between women and men. And so uh, from that perspective, uh, what we've argued in earlier research this was the first paper of yours that I actually read. Oh, I really love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The married women's property rights one. Yeah. So, so what we what we argue there is that uh, that uh, what really drove this earliest uh, wave of legal change is uh, is this altruism channel, and it came about because uh, children became much more important with rising returns of human capital. You know, in the old days, children grew up. You know, they did uh, the same task that parents did. Formal education wasn't so important. Uh, you came to a point where uh, human capital really mattered and so your kids getting good education, your grandchildren getting good education and having good support there became very important. And this is during the time, we talked about this earlier, but we had this division of labor with virtually the mothers in charge of uh, taking care of kids and making sure they get the right education. And so, so this concern arose, well, if we want the, the children to do well and the mothers are in charge, you know, shouldn't the mothers have some protection and some power here? And to some extent, this is based also on just reading the political debate at this time. So if you read about uh, uh, these laws being proposed and see what, say, uh, the Times uh, in London was writing in various editorials or what uh, letters to the editor, editor writing about, it's really kind of two things people mention. One is this notion of a God-given right for man to be in charge, you know, which you know, I guess you can find some biblical references for that. So it's just a natural order of things. Of course. Opposed to the idea that, well, there's also men that don't do a very good job and we have to give some protection to those families. And it's really uh, often informed by the more extreme cases. Of course, the 19th century was, a, was also a time of mass drunkenness, you know, where the working class often went straight from factory to the pub and uh, spent all the money on, uh, on liquor. And, and that was well known, that was a problem. And so you had these uh, families that were really neglected because the husband would be taking all the money, converting to alcohol and being violent. And there was no legal protection at all for these, for these women and their children. And so the, the uh, other direction that really came up more and more strongly in uh, the historical debate there was to say, well, we have to empower these women because they have to be able to uh, protect their children themselves from these, uh, from these husbands. Uh, because now, you know, children are really uh, important and education is important. 
And so we argue this you know, drives a lot of this uh, early uh, change in legal rights. And again, I think it's important to remember that often we think of these legal rights uh, not as uh, being uh, so important for, for every single relationship. I think in many relationships, you know, most relationships, uh, you know, we live them without uh, opening the, the law book, you know, and decide, well, this is what the, you know, what, uh, what this particular uh, section of this law says you can do, you know, it's, it's, uh, you live your life and only when things go really wrong, this comes into place, but things did go wrong. And so people wanted to change things. And can I also add, I think there are parallels today. Um, now, terribly, I've forgotten it. But there is a paper showing that men with daughters are more likely to be sympathetic to feminism right. because they've seen the struggles that their daughters go through or sons of working mothers are more likely to be sympathetic and want a working wife, right. for example. Right. So I think it's that personal connection under specific economic conditions that can foster this sort of personal sympathy, for example. Exactly. So Bonnie Washington, at the end, for example, her job market paper was about this, that if you look at U.S., Legislators, no, and, you see, <laughs> and you see who has yes, daughters. Yes, right. yes. you know, the ones whose daughters are a lot more supportive of, yes. of uh, various kinds of women's rights. So this was important. It's not the only one. So another one that really matters a lot more uh, in the last hundred years or so, where we had this large rise in female participation, is also what does women working uh, do to everybody else in the labor market? You know, and and this is a motive that shows up in many different places. You know? for example, why do we? Uh, have immigration restrictions. You know, it has a lot to do with uh, workers being worried about uh, people coming from elsewhere and competing away their wages. You know, and the debate is often that you have uh, one group that says, "Well, these guys will compete with me," and there's others that, that say, "Well, these people will actually be very complementary to my to my work." You know, if you are, let's say, raising children and you're looking for cheap childcare, immigrant labor can be very useful, and so so you might actually benefit in terms of your own labor supply by having more immigration. With women, it's a principle not that different. You know, if you have uh, laws that make it easier for women to work and that increase human participation, if you are already working, well, then uh, your earnings might go up or down. And they might go up or down quite a bit, depending on exactly what kind of work that you do. You know, if you are, say, a clerical worker, which uh, where you had a lot of entry of, of women, you might be worried that this is going to lower your, your wages. If you're a teacher uh, and all of a sudden many women enter the profession, it's not going to make your... Uh, particular skill more scarce and therefore it's going to be going against your personal interest. Also, if you think of the whole family, you, know, you could have also women you know, who are not working but whose husbands are potentially affected by more women entering who are also going to be opposed. So when you think of the labor market impact, it's often not so much about your own gender, it's really about uh, what kind of labor supply you do and, and that kind of explains why the support here doesn't really break down by male and female, it really breaks down a lot more by what kind of labor that you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that reminds me of Ogilvy's work on guilds, for example. You know, when German workers right. wanted to protect themselves, they resented women entering their same field and tried to push them out with exclusionary restrictions. Exactly. So exactly. there are lots mm -hmm. of historical parallels. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what kind of legal rights do you think can be explained by economics and which can't be? So, so we did an analysis yes. of looking at the last 40 years of data across mm -hmm. many countries and just... Uh, did regressions. They're yes. descriptive, you know, they're not causal, but they give you some, some first sense of how much this uh, matters. Uh, for these uh, economic uh, uh, channels, we look in particular at the impact of the uh, total fertility rate, because uh, this, uh, this uh, channel of parental altruism is linked to smaller families' investments in human capital. We look at female labor force participation rate, because it kind of tells you how salient this aspect of competition in the labor market is. And we find, perhaps not surprisingly, that, that these uh, dimensions of, kind of economic rights explain quite a bit of the variation uh, in terms of economic rights and in terms of labor rights, you know, kind of, kind of directly these uh, aspects where they are relevant. 
There's also political rights, and so they explain somewhat less there. And finally, body rights, and they still matter, but they explain uh, in percentage terms uh, quite a bit less. So uh, if you think about uh, protections against domestic violence, marital rape, um, there might be, I think there's a lot more potential for cultural factors, religious factors playing an important role there. How much does political context matter? Current context matter? Um, so, yeah, like, for example, let me give you two examples. In Russia and China, where you've had totalitarianism and feminist activism has been suffocated, <clears throat> there are very, very weak protections against gender-based violence and sexual harassment. Like, yeah, the Russian parliament decriminalized wife battery. Like, it's legal to beat your wife as long as you don't break any bones. And the other thing that occurs to me is, like, some of these channels, aren't we presuming that, you know, people, that policy follows voters' choices? And is that the right way to think about the world when 64% of people live in authoritarian regimes? Mm -hmm. like, and those regimes aren't necessarily tracking voters' desires. Uh, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, you know, governments may make a number of reforms designed to please Western donors, to create a facade right. of liberalizing democracy, especially if they're very authoritarian and they want donor money, like Rwanda, for example. So you might see governments doing things regardless of the economic conditions of their people. Yes, for sure. So no question that democracies and autocracy have different political mechanisms. Even if you're an autocrat, though, you still care about what the people think because you don't, you know, your, your main concern is not to be overthrown. Mm. And so making people more angry than necessary is not really in your interest. So, so we would think that even autocracy, that there's good evidence for that, uh, political preferences still matter. They might matter quite a bit less. Um, and at the same time, what you were mentioning with international pressure, I think it's very relevant for women's rights and also some other aspects of, uh, uh, you know, rights that have been become uh, prevalent in recent years, that indeed there is uh, potentially a big gap between uh, legal rights and actually uh, de facto rights, so, so the enforcement also matters. And there can be good reasons for countries to uh, pass laws uh, officially, uh, but uh, without actually uh, investing in the enforcement. And another example is you know, female genital cutting, you know, which is now illegal, I think, almost uh, everywhere. There was some pressure mm. to do that. The practice hasn't really changed all yes. that much. You know? so, so, the, so the will to really enforce these constraints uh, uh, can, be, can be a gap. And this is something that, uh, yeah, with the most naive uh, approach, you wouldn't be able to explain. So you have to then also take into account these international pressures and how they affect the, uh, the outcomes. The only one caveat that I'd say about even authoritarians have to take into account political preferences is that in an authoritarian environment, a feminist consciousness might not emerge. Like, if women don't see people openly criticizing unfairness and inequalities, then they may just take those things for granted, take them as inevitable. Like, I think in China, you know, some data suggests that, you know, the vast majority of women just see sexual harassment as inevitable and something you need to manage by yourself, not something, not the terrain of the government. Right? So if you're authoritarian, those preferences might not emerge. But... And this comes back to this earlier thing that you said, that, uh, that it's never really uh, economics or culture, these things kind of evolve uh, together. Now, I'm, I'm from Germany, and it's another example of that kind where you had uh, a country, well, there were some pre-war differences, but they became much more pronounced after the war, because in, uh, in uh, East Germany, you have a socialist government, and for various reasons, they did like everybody to be at work. You know, the, the state takes care of the children, labor force participation is very high, uh, also for, for mothers, and so you had, in, in some sense, a fairly empowered, uh, society in terms of gender, of course, not at all in many other ways. 
In West Germany, the political dominant force was uh, essentially a Catholic-dominated uh, Christian party, and they had uh, conservative views at this point. You know, and so they designed a system that made it really hard for them to work. You mentioned a similar example uh, earlier. It was also uh, a setting with almost uh, no uh, childcare for young children. Yeah. A school from nine to twelve. There was no uh, lunch at school. You know, kids had to go home. So it was designed to kind of really favor the single earner uh, model. And at this time, it may have been. Uh, just a policy choice, but of course, over time, this reinforces uh, you know, itself, and so the cultural values that people develop then change. You know? And so now, if you look at uh, surveys, even 30 years after the wall comes down, it is still the case that West Germans think, if you ask them, that it's bad, you know, and relative to this, it's worse for uh, little children, for the mothers to be working, uh, compared to, uh, you ask the same question to somebody in, uh, in East Germany. You know? So, so uh, it was initially a political difference, but then you know, the practice uh, shapes the culture and that gives persistence. Remind me of the German word the, for women who work. It's, uh... it's the Rabenmutter. Yes, yes. 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 <laughs> and, and, the, and the paper I like by one of your colleagues, and Camille Landisi, right, um, about showing that there is uh, the working mothers suffer a larger loss in income in countries where there is strong prescriptions and condemnation of working mothers. That's right. And so the, the culture and the economics again track each other and there's exactly. a mutual evolutionary process. 100% with you. Um, okay, tell me. So, broadly, we see this correlation that as countries become richer with female labor, uh, at, with, there's a correlation between economic development and women's legal rights, right? But there seems to be one exception to that. Tell me about that. And I'm thinking of the Middle East and North Africa. Oh, that's right. So, we, we, we do have uh, indeed some countries that are very rich and are very gender unequal. We're going to have the uh, football World Cup in one of them in, yes. in, in just a few days. And uh, that, in a way, is not a big surprise from the economic perspective, you know, because the channels I've, I've talked about, they don't really say it's about income or, or money. You know, it's not because you're rich that you support uh, more rights women, but because uh, the way we got richer was associated with certain changes. It was associated first with a change in returns to human capital, then a change in relative returns to uh, women's and uh, men's labor, and that led to these changes in female labor supply that then ultimately triggered more more legal changes. Now, some countries got rich in a different way. You know? so, so if you got rich just by selling resources, like uh, some countries in the Middle East uh, are doing, you can have a very high income per person without having gone uh, through those ch same changes. And then perhaps it shouldn't be a surprise that in those places we do in fact observe that women's rights are uh, really uh, a lot more, a lot less developed than in those countries that went through the same uh, sequence of changes as, as we did over here. Okay, two things I need to reply to this. So. I, number one, I totally agree with your argument that it's female labor force participation that shapes cultural preferences. It's not wealth per se. So as you know, Ingelhardt, for example, and Wellsell, they put forward this modernization theory that once you have existential security, once you have a degree of wealth, then you choose to have more liberal values. It's like, I have enough money, so I'm going to decide to be tolerant, which I think is the most bonkers idea in the world. Like, no one chooses their values. That's totally, totally bonkers. What happens is that as you have rising female labor force participation, labor market, you know, women working for pay, women demonstrating their equal competence, women gathering in the public sphere, women bitching and moaning and complaining about patriarchy, then people realize that women are equally competent, then women get together and they, you know, challenge and mobilize and contest unfairness, especially in democracies. So I'm totally with you on the mechanism. There's not wealth, it's job creating economic growth. But 
So I see you siding towards the Michael Ross explanation of the Middle East, that it's oil, not Islam, right? So Michael mm. Ross is this famous paper in the American Political Science Review where he argues that female labor force participation is low across the Middle East and North Africa because these countries have lots of oil and that slows down female labor force participation because of the exchange rate, blah, blah, blah. I don't think this is correct. In fact, there's a new paper in World Development that shows that even if there is a major oil discovery in a Muslim-majority country, mm. within the next 10 years, female employment only falls by like a couple of percent, like 2%. And there are many, like Turkey, for example, not a major oil producer, but still female employment is way below the global average. And my explanation for that is not about the way they got rich, not about, you know, they've got so much oil, etc., but rather, and let me. Uh, uh, but rather, what I talk about is this honor-income trade-off that, in families where male honor is contingent upon female chastity, and for example, in Islam, where there is this idea that you know lust is dangerous, and so women should be veiled, some believe, and secluded and kept back to the home. And this comes back to Ghazali and comes back to rumors. So where male honor is contingent on, on policing female chastity of their kin, of keeping women away from strange men, then female labor supply rises very weakly in response to economic growth. Now, it can rise. And so, for example, in Turkey since 2003, female employment rose with job creating economic growth. But it, it rises very weakly. So, for example, in the UK, uh, uh, female employment among Muslims is especially low. Like among uh, British Bangladeshis and British Pakistanis, only 69% of the, only 39% of them work versus 69% of Indian British Indians. So I think I I personally would stress a cultural explanation. Like I don't think your the the point about resources and oil could explain why there's a Muslim penalty in the UK. Right. That seems cultural. I think. So See, now you I'm and I are having this big debate on economics versus culture, and I'm going culture, culture, culture. Yes, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm not, I'm not, you're probably a bigger expert on, on this area of the world uh, than, than I am. What I can say in our regressions, mm. so we, we do have you know, mm. uh, controls for Muslim majority, and, and you can see what happens there. Mm. And uh, what we find in our regressions, just us kind of regressing laws in these uh, four different areas on economic variables plus religion, that the uh, Muslim dummy... Uh, on its own, doesn't really do much, you know, so it doesn't change the picture a whole lot. However, there's an interaction with the level of development. You know? so, so you see that uh, it's a negative interaction between uh, Muslim majority and economic development, which means that as we uh, get richer, that uh, there's less of a positive impact uh, of development on, right. on women's rights. You know? And it's not just, this is not just because of the oil-producing countries. So even if you leave those out and just mm -hmm. look at Turkey and uh, Arab countries without oil, uh, you still get that uh, same result. And that is perhaps consistent with, with the view that you have uh, these uh, principles present, you know, so you have the return to human capital going up and uh, the return to female labor going up, but there's something cultural holding back, you know, the impact uh, of this on, on women's rights. Doesn't mean it's not there at all, you know, so certainly, I mean, uh, say Turkey, you know, has uh, more developed women's rights than, uh, than it did 100 years ago and then, than some other Muslim majority countries have today, but it's, yes, it's, not, it's not the same at all compared to, say, Sweden. Okay, so I think we agree there is a role for both economics and culture in explaining the global cultural diversity in parenting, the rise, the, the fall and rise in fertility, and also women's legal rights over the past century. Very much. And I think we also agree it's not about uh, which one is better or doesn't work, <laughs> but it's about understanding the interaction. Right? Because, yes, of course, precisely. both these things uh, matter and you know, social science should uh, understand both of them. I agree entirely. 
Professor Matthias Duarte, thank you so much. This has been a great treat. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you.